Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. Uh, I'm Jody Hanks. I'm retired Chief Master Sergeant uh, in the Air Force. I served from uh, 1985 to, um, oh gosh, when did I get out? <laughs> 2009. Um, I, I put in 24 years. Um, I actually spent some time in the uh, in the Army Reserve before going in. Uh, there was a, uh, a transportation company that was uh, about 15, 20 miles from my house, so I, I, I served with them in the uh, in the Army's Navy, um, I drove boats for the Army, you know, light amphibious craft and things like that. Loved the, um, loved the job, didn't really care for the Army that much. Uh, my father was in the Navy, and um, so I, I chose the Air Force out of all that. <laughs> so, so what made you choose the Air Force? Well, it, it's kind of a funny story. I joke about it. Um, when I was working at a, at a Domino's Pizza. I man, managed a Domino's. You know, I started out as a driver like a, you know, a lot of people do. And um, was working in, uh, in a town where uh, there wasn't a lot of business. So I was working, you know, 12-hour days and uh, you know, five or six days a week. That got very old. Um, I, had a, I had a wife. We'd been married for about a year, you know, so I wasn't looking for you know, to go from job to job. Um, so we talked it out and said, hey, you know, well, when I joined the service, I grew up in the Navy, um, so you know I'm used to the to the lifestyle. You know I kind of know what it's all about. Um, didn't really want to go into the Navy. Knew I didn't want to go in the Army, and uh, so you know the Air Force recruiter was down the road. So that's who I went and talked to, and just a you know, few months later, I was I was in the Air Force. I wanted to go into the healthcare field. I wanted weekends off, so I actually went into dental. Because I knew I would have, uh, you know, I'd work clinic hours, and I would, I would have weekends off. I'd work in air conditioning most of the time, so that was <laughs> that was kind of what I was looking for. <laughs> uh, so, where all um, did you have the opportunity to serve in that twenty-four years? Well, <clears throat> my uh, my first eight years I spent at the Air Force Academy. It was a special duty assignment that I got out of tech school. Um, I ended up um, they have uh, what's called an honor graduate. You know, whoever has the the highest academic score and everything in the class. Um, so, you know, there were a couple of us there, so we got picked for the special duties, right? We got offered those. So I went to the Air Force Academy, um, spent eight years there. Um, it was supposed to be a four-year controlled tour in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And at about the four-year mark, I was ready to go. Um, it took me four years to get out. I ended up volunteering for Worldwide Anything <laughs> and went to... Uh, um, ended up taking a short tour to um, to Lodges Airfield in the Azores, Portugal, um, and uh, from there went to uh, Panama City. Uh, been to long story short, been to many states. Spent some time with the Air Force uh, IG. Um, I've lived in or visited uh, twenty countries, um, um, and um, you know probably thirty, forty states. So. Did a lot of traveling. 
So with with all of that experience, a lot of folks will say, especially civilians, well, why not become an officer? Especially after going to the Air Force Academy and working with in that environment, why not why not figure out how to get to that next step and become an officer? It never really. I don't know. Uh, maybe because my, my father was enlisted. Uh, you know, he retired as a senior chief in the Navy. Um, I, liked the, I liked the life. I didn't, uh, I didn't have a bachelor's degree or anything when I went in. And I, I, ended, I didn't end up getting my degree until, until late in my career, as a matter of fact. Um, but it just never really appealed to me. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, you get into a lot of politics and things like that once you mm-hmm. become an officer. Um, I wasn't, uh, <laughs> I, w- I probably wasn't one to, to to play that kind of game. I'm kind of a, um, I'm a nonconformist. I've, I've been that way all my life. And, and you, you say, okay, well, you know, what's someone like you doing joining the military? And that's a great question. Um, I, I believed in it. Um, I don't like being told what to do. I have a real hard time with that still. And, um, a <laughs> funny story. I mean, I started out like that, but, and when I, when I ended up retiring, I was a chief master sergeant and the senior enlisted advisor at, uh, at Keesler Air Force Base, and uh, my my commander for my going a pra- oh, for for a going away gift gave me a set of wine glasses, and these wine glasses had had little fish etched in them, and they're all swimming the same direction except for one. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that that reputation kind of carried me through all the way to the end, but I think it uh, it also helped me a lot because I I questioned a lot of things, I pushed back. Um, you know, when, when I thought that, uh, you know, I needed to push back on things and, um, helped a lot of people, I think, um, you know, made a small reputation for myself, I guess, in the, in the military. I was looked at, uh, you know, within my career field and, you know, within the, uh, uh, the medical field as a subject matter expert on, um, on, uh, a myriad of things, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, through my time with the IG. And, um, I was, uh, I was, it was it was a lot of fun. In the end, yeah. it was a lot of fun. It was great working with folks, and uh, loved the Air Force. So, so you describe yourself as a nonconformist, but you chose to stick it out for twenty-four years. And a lot of folks, the perception of the military is people that just do what they're told. So, why stick it out? Or what would you say to people that say, you know, well, the, you know, how in the world could you do that when you know you're just supposed to do what you're told? Well. Well, remember when I first went in, it was about uh, weekends off and air conditioning. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I liked what I did. I believed in what I did. I believed in the mission. I liked, uh, you know, I was I was the the military lifestyle was was comfortable to me. But the one area that what what really changed the course of my career um, came from a supervisor that I didn't really care about. Um, I had I always I always did a good job. I did the best that I could. Um, you know, I um, I always tried to, you know, if if I was a supervisor, I tried to do a good job as a supervisor. I, I did a good job as a clinician, and I had a supervisor. We went from airman performance reports to enlisted performance reports um, in the uh, in the Air Force. The ratings are you know similar, except it's just a different scale, and. The first enlisted performance report that I received, I was given, uh, I was marked down in leadership. And, uh, you know, I was a staff sergeant at the time. I worked for a master sergeant who was the NCOIC of our, of our clinic. And, you know, I, 
after my EPR became a matter of record, I went and got, got a copy of it, and I'm looking at it, and I get marked down in leadership, and I'm like, you know, what the hell? And <laughs> I go, I, you know, go to her office, you know, I, you know, bang on her door, <laughs> you know, I kind of barge in there, and, um, and, I, and I held it out, and I said, you know, what is this? And she was eating her lunch, and she said, well, I'm eating my lunch now. You can come back in a half hour, which just really pissed me off. <laughs> and I, I went out, and I stood about it for a half hour more, and I went back in there, and, and I said, you know, why did you mark me down in leadership? And, you know, I've done this, 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 this. And she said, well, you know, Sergeant Hanks, it's because you're an asshole. And, and she, went to, you know, she went on to explain to me that, hey, you know, you're, you're, you're a great technician. You've got, you know, so much potential, but, you know, you're not a team player. You know, you don't work with the rest of the group. You know, you're always, you know, you're sarcastic, pushing back on everything. And, um, you know, I left out of there. I was angry. And, you know, over, over the next few days and weeks, you know, I, I, I really kind of, you know, internalized, you know, what she said. It really made me angry. And, um, you know, I came to the realization that hey, she was right. You know, she was, she was absolutely right. That's exactly the kind of person that I was, you know, that was... Um, you know, I might just be, you know, kidding around with things, but, you know, people take that stuff the wrong way or people take that stuff the way that I put it out. It's not necessarily the wrong way. Um, although I might not intend it to be that way. Anyway, um, she was right from that point on. I mean, I made a conscious decision to change the, you know, my approach, the way that I, the way that I, the way that I presented myself, the way that I talked to people, the way that I worked and, um, you know, I, you know, the the non-conforming thing still, you know, <laughs> pushed yeah. back at me. But from from that point, that's that's that was the that was the moment that my career changed, that my attitude changed, my attitude changed. Um, and from that point on, from you know, you know, my supervisor, her name was Dora Gilbert, and um, she she did the right thing. She had the courage to do, you know, to, to mark me down when, uh, you know, a lot of people just kind of firewall those things and, and, and spit them out. You know, she, she gave me a fair assessment and then, uh, you know, let me go with it. And, you know, it's really up to me at that point, you know, am I going to dwell on this forever and let my, my career tank, or am I going to take that information, internalize it and, and become a better, a better airman, a better leader because of it. And it, it served me well. Um, my my progress from that point on um, was a well, straighter yeah. trajectory from that point on, um, and I, I I I progressed through the ranks. I progressed through uh, positions. I was actually able to you know to deal better with um, with uh, with uh, my peers, with my subordinates. I was able to to grow folks um, and help them achieve more in their careers. Uh, that was that was really the the moment that changed everything for me. So that led to obviously eventually becoming a chief master sergeant. So in the rank of enlisted, the enlisted ranks, excuse me, um, where does that, where does the chief master sergeant sit? Uh, chiefs in E9. So 1% of the uh, enlisted force become chiefs. Yeah. So you're sitting at basically at the top. Right. Um, yeah. We didn't have warrant officers. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the uh, leadership responsibilities for a, for a chief master sergeant? Really, or any senior NCO? Yeah, it really um, it really starts at the at the senior NCO point. That's when uh, you, know, you take uh, responsibility for for larger larger organizations, uh, bigger groups of people. 
The, the challenging thing is, you know, if you're a master sergeant, you're a senior at the time that, that I was in, I mean, you're still competing for a promotion and you're still trying to develop people that are, um, you know, that are going to be competing against you as you go forward. And it's, you know, I've seen, I've seen folks, um, you know, hold people back because they did not want to, um, you know, make it tougher for themselves to get promoted. Um, you know, I, I never work that way. Um, you know, I, I probably had to, I probably spent more time working with other people trying to, um, you know, put them in a position that, uh, you know, they would excel and having to, you know, catch up later after hours and things like that, you know, giving people opportunities to, um, you know, to get involved in programs, um, instead of, um, you know, hoarding those for myself. Um, so, you know, your responsibility as you, as you get up there, the, the big thing is you just, you, you, you're, you're responsible for, for more folks. And, yeah. um, you know, your job, if you, if you do it right, you know, you're going to you know, develop them to, to progress right behind you so that when you move on to that next position, you know, you have that person that's going to step into your role. That's kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. The great thing about being chief is you're not worried about promotions anymore. You know, you can, yeah. <laughs> you can, you can dedicate 100% of your time to, um, to, you know, just developing your folks. And, and that, you know, I was a, I was a chief for uh, six or seven years of my, my career. And that was really the, the best time in the Air Force because, you know, all of my time was spent on, on people, um, you know, um, you know, operation, operations, um, uh, what's the best way to say that? Um, you know, overseeing the operations of the, the squadron, the group, the mission, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, bringing the, bringing the folks behind you and, uh, you know, developing them into leaders that would eventually be able to take your place. Uh, my last assignment uh, was at Keesler Air Force Base. Um, we took over there um, in, the aftermath of, in, the, in the aftermath of Katrina, and, um, you know, there, there was talk at one time of, of, of closing Keesler after Katrina hit because, I mean, it literally, literally, literally wiped out just yeah. about everything. And, um, you know... The morale wasn't great. Their um, um, the facilities that we were in were being, you know, rebuilt. I mean, it was it was a it was a struggle. Under undermanned, you know, we were at sixty seventy percent manning when I got there. I happened to get there the same time as a um, as a a maintainer who came right out of first sergeant school there, and uh, you know, we gelled together. I mean, perfectly during that time. And the way that the way that I look at uh, chiefs as the senior enlisted advisor and a first sergeant you have chiefs who are they organize train and equip um first sergeants they they're responsible for care and feeding right two sides of the same coin you need all of those things to complete the mission we took that squadron it was the dental squadron there at keesler um <clears throat> it was the second largest actually it was the largest dental squadron in the uh, in the air force at the time and um we took this this group of people, I mean, the morale was low. They hadn't won a single award in, um, in years. And by the time we finished in, uh, in three years, it was the winningest um, squadron, or actually it was the winningest organization in the, in the command. We were in Air Education and Training Command. Um, we took them from, um, you know, kind of being a, 
uh, not very prominent within the wing to um, to a, a leader within the wing, just because of the the the, um, the things that we implemented during there. And <laughs> I'll give you an example. One of the things that uh, every 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 service has their song, right? You know, we yeah. have the Air Force song. Off mm-hmm. we go. And you know the the history of that. It's a it's a it's a bar song, right? It's supposed to be bawdy. Yeah. It's supposed to be loud. You clap when you sing the Air Force song. Well. In uh, on this base, you know, I'd never seen it before. You know, we sing the Air Force song after a ceremony, and everybody's staying in at attention, just kind of singing the Air Force song. It's 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 quiet, and I'm clapping. I'm the only one in the in the room that's clapping, right? And uh, <laughs> I told I told the squadron after the after we were finished, I said, Hey, you know, when you sing the Air Force song, you clap. Okay, next time we do it, you guys need to clap. So the next time we did it, nobody clapped. I'm the only one clapping. <laughs> and so I made everybody stop. I said, Hey. You know, I said last time, uh, when we sing the Air Force song, you clap. And uh, I, said, I said, if we do this again and you don't clap, I said, we'll be out in the parking lot singing the Air Force song. And sure enough, the next uh, commander's call we had, nobody freaking clapped again. <laughs> like, okay, parking lot, we're going to sing the Air Force song. So, um, you know, one night after, after work, you know, I had everybody, you know, line up the first sergeant, got him out there. We sang the Air Force song, the entire enlisted staff, a hundred and something people standing out there singing the Air Force song. They're in the parking lot of the of the of the dental squadron. You know, we had <laughs> some Navy guys walking by, it was funny. <laughs> but they're out there singing the Air Force song. They're clapping. And uh um, you know, we did we did it a couple times, ran through it, and from that point on everybody clapped every time we sang the Air Force song. Not only that, when 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 we were part of um larger um um larger events you know more people more squadrons you know we or, or we were at the wing we would be the only ones clapping out of the entire wing and we got the entire wing clapping <laughs> singing the air force song <laughs> so uh that's probably one of my accomplishments there i wonder if they still do it <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. So what influence do you think your father had as a senior enlisted man himself? Had, did he have on your, uh, on how you led um, airmen? Uh, my dad's a, he's a great role model. And um, he's, um, you know, what probably struck me most about him was, um, you know, his uniform. I mean, he took a lot of pride in his uniform. You know, he's sitting sitting there on uh, Sunday night, you know, ironing out the sleeves and, you know, getting his khakis and everything looking just right. And, um, you know, I was a jeans and T-shirt kind of guy. <laughs> and, um, but that's probably the thing that, that, that really stood out. You know, and I, I'd go out to the base from, with him from time to time. You know, he'd be talking and, you know, just watching him, you know, salute an officer as he walks by. I mean, just those, just those little things, and it's something that, um, you know, a military member doesn't really think about that, you know, the, you know, the pride they take in their uniform or the, the respect you pay to an officer who, who you pass on the, uh, on the street. But, you know, to, 
you know, to a teenage kid, that has, that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. You know, my father, he, he, he coached, uh, you know, baseball and, you know, he was, he was involved with, uh, um, you know, with the family and, you know, we had, had his Air Force friends over and, I mean, just, you know, the way that, uh, that he presented himself, I was proud of his service. I was kind of, I was proud to, you know, brag about what my dad did. So, um, you know, he probably would have hated having me work for him when, you know, those first few years I was in the Air Force, you know, <laughs> I'd have probably been up in front of the commander. Um, but uh, um, I think I made him proud on the way out. So, Wow. So was there ever a moment, especially, you know, 24 years, that's a, that's a great career in the military. Was there ever a moment when you said, that's why I'm doing this? You know, that probably occurred, well, just as I was retiring. As, as I was approaching my retirement, right, you know, people are asking you, hey, you're going to miss the Air Force, you know, are you going to miss it, you know, you've been here so long. And, you know, the question never really occurred to me before. You know, I mean, that was, that was our life. You know, once you hit that, you know, that 10-year mark, you, know, you might as well stay for 20, right? And I had never, I had never considered getting out. I mean, I, I enlisted for six years every time I reenlisted. But, you know, I, I thought about that question. Are you going to miss the Air Force? And, you know, kind of funny, my answer was no, you know, after I really gave it some thought. I mean, after all, at the, at the end of the day, right, you know, what I was doing, my job, it was, it was just a job. And, um, and don't get me wrong, because the Air Force was great to me. They were great to my family. Um, I'm, I'm immensely proud of my service. Um, but just as, just as, the, as the Air Force um, faded into my memory, you know, Chief Hanks fades into the memory of or the collective memory of the Air Force, right? You know, my hope at that time was that I had, had, I had been a positive force in the lives and the careers of the airmen that were in my charge, you know, because they certainly had a, had a profound impact on me. And what I, what I do miss um, is, is fighting the good fight, right? I miss those times when I stood alone fighting for an airman or an airman's initiative. Um, you know, these were the times that I felt that I was really making a difference. You know, when I could affect change in an airman's life or their career, you know, by challenging the status quo, right? <clears throat> now, um, you know, I, <laughs> I pissed a lot of people off. But the fact that I, I won a lot more battles than I lost, and I think that suggests that, you know, a lot of those people were probably just obstructionists, right? They were just standing in the way. They didn't want to change. And, um, you know, they just needed to be moved. Um, and too often today I find that, you know, leaders and supervisors, they don't question the existing state of affairs, right? You know, they won't rail against an injustice that's, that's, that's perpetrated by, by a rule or a policy. You know, too often you we're satisfied in the knowledge that a, that a, that a rule is applicable to and you know, maybe serves most airmen, right? Um, you know, that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few yeah. <laughs> or the one. Um, but to me, and, and, and when I was in the Air Force, you know, that philosophy couldn't be more wrong, right? Our country was founded on individualism, right, that recognizes the needs of the minority. And the greatest minority is that, that individual, that individual airman. Um, so, you know, for me, the needs of the one, you know, sometimes do outweigh the needs of the many. And, and, and although, you know, there were times that I was tilting at windmills, you know, it's still that one airman, you know, that, you know, that you, have to, you have to fight that fight for, you know, fight that good fight for. And that's, at the end of the day, that's why I, that's why I did it. That's why I never considered 
getting out of the Air Force. You know, that, you know, fighting the good fight for that, for that one airman that deserves the fight. And, I don't know, that's, that's why I was there. Yeah. Did you ever, uh, how did you help your, help airmen understand maybe kind of the big picture? Sometimes when some veterans, when they've served in a support role, you know, the focus is always on the guys that served in Iraq, the guys in combat. But how do you help those airmen understand kind of their role in the, in the big picture that, that those support roles are so important because they allow those war fighters, as they would say, to get in and do their job? Well, I've got another story for you. And I, <laughs> that's probably what we're good for, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, uh, when I was at uh, Kunsan in Korea, um, I was the medical group superintendent there. And um, in Korea, we exercise all the time, right? You know, they have peninsula-wide exercises um, all the time, monthly, quarterly. And um, my flight surgeon, um, not my flight surgeon, but the people that work in the flight surgeon clinic, you know, they're responsible for, um, for treating the, the maintainers, right? And they're always complaining because the, the air crew, or you know, not the air crew, but the, the, the fellows that are the maintainers that are working on the jets and things like that, they never make their appointments. You know, they're always late. You know, they never can get out there. And so I'm, I'm listening to them complain all the time. Now, I got with the chiefs over at the, um, you know, that worked for the, uh, for the, for the, uh, for the fighter squadrons and, you know, just talked about what I'm seeing, you know, what we're looking at and, you know, what kind of challenges they have. And, you know, those guys are out there turning wrenches all the time. You know, when an exercise is over, well, they've got to get all those planes spun up to, to fly again. I mean, they're, they're still working. So, um, you know, with the, with the, with the fighter chiefs, um, you know, we came up with a plan that, you know, we'd kind of do a crew chief for a day, um, program. You know, I threw it out to, to, the, to the folks in the medical group, and, you know, I got a lot of people. I didn't get too many people taken up at first, but what they would do is, you know, someone would volunteer. They would meet, um, you know, the, the crew chief there at the, at, the, at the gate in the morning, and they would take them. They would spend that entire day, whatever, whatever they were doing that day. If it's raining, if it's snowing, if they're out there for 14, 15 hours, well, that medic is out there with that crew chief, you know, in the, in the noise, in the, um, you know, in the weather, um, working on those jets or watching them work on the jets. And um, the feedback that I got from that program was awesome. Um, I had a waiting list of people that wanted to, to do that, to go out there and experience that. The complaints about the, um, you know, the, the, the crew chiefs and stuff missing their appointments evaporated. You know, we didn't get any more because they understood you know, they, they, they saw more than just what, what um, they saw more than just their job, right? More than just, you know, they had, they had a perspective outside their, their clinic. They saw, you know, the, the Air Force mission being persecuted out there on that flight line, and they understood from firsthand experience what those crew chiefs went through every day, you know, and they understood now why they didn't, you know, make their appointment. They also didn't get to the club for a beer while, you know, the, the medics were there drinking either, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, seeing the big, big picture is, you know, just taking them outside of, 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 of what they do every day, you know, and, and letting, letting them understand that, you know, you're a medic, you know, you're not a pilot, and, you know, don't think that, you know, you don't contribute to the, to the, uh, to the mission. You know, they're taking care of, um, 
you know, weapon systems, you, you care for the human weapon system, which is probably the most important weapon system in the Air Force. You know, I mean, how much does it cost to train a pilot? And, uh, you know, when you lose a pilot, it's a lot easier to replace an airplane than it is a pilot. So, yeah. you know, helping them understand that, you know, seeing, seeing beyond the four walls of their, of their clinic space is, is, is what makes the difference for them, you know, letting them see. So now in your free time since retiring, you got the crazy idea to start a podcast. <laughs> Why anybody would start a podcast, I have no idea. So, so talk a little bit about your podcast and, and why uh, why you chose to start that. I actually learned about podcasting. I I supervised a bunch of uh, um, a group of uh, doctors and mid levels who did um, wound care in, in skilled nursing facilities, right? And uh, this was a this was a regional area. So, um, trying to get everybody together for like a meeting was was impossible right no matter when you did it no matter what time you had it you know people are in cars people are working you know they're they're working from six in the morning till you know nine at night so getting everybody together was 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 difficult so i listened to podcast you know this was oh gosh seven years ago so what i started doing was just kind of recording the meeting you know in in kind of a podcast format putting it out to everybody. I think I did it through Podbean or something and um, saying, okay, you know, next seven days, listen to this. You've got your update. Just let me know you did it. Well, I've done more with, uh, with podcasting since then. And my first sergeant buddy that I talked to you about before that, uh, the one at Keesler, the one where we, you know, we really raised the, uh, the bar there. We do this podcast together. It's called the digression podcast. And basically it's, it's, you know, we talk about military news, history, and folklore that kind of stuff. And it's, 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 it's kind of born out of the conversations that we used to have in my office and almost every morning, right? You know, you start off on a topic and then you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, you digress to the point that you don't even remember how you got there. You know, um, you started talking about, you know, the, the, um, the ORI that's coming up and, you know, now you're talking about bunny rabbits or something, but, uh, <laughs> But that's 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 what it came to. Well, thanks for letting me plug that. That's cool. Yeah. So and so, where can folks find the podcast? Oh, any of the any of the platforms. It's the Digression Podcast. So I'm, you know, we're on everything. It's the digressionpodcast.com. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.
It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.